Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Justin Trudeau throws some crumbs to the peasants with his offer of a one-dose summer, a caucus mutiny in Alberta's UCP government, and calling out dishonest reporting about Israel from the mainstream media. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. May 13th, 2021, just coming up in a few weeks' time, is our one-dose summer. I know, I'm so excited. I've been looking forward my whole life to having a one-dose summer. Sounds like a, a weird band from the 90s, or alternatively, some weird summer chick flick teenage rom-com type film, where you get to have your one-dose summer, you've been cooped up, you finally get to come out and have a little bit of fun with your friends, but not too much, because it's only a one-dose summer. Yeah, this was something that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau threw to us as being in some way a good thing. Why don't you take a look? We all want to have a summer where we can see our loved ones and invite friends over for barbecues. We can have that summer. We can have a one-dose summer. But for that, two things need to happen. First, restrictions need to remain in place until cases go way down with more screening testing, and contact tracing. We need to successfully limit community transmission. Second, as Dr. Tam said, at least 75% of Canadians need to have received their first shots. And we need to keep ramping up those second doses. If we can do this, then we can have a more normal, better summer. So Trudeau saying this is all part of the big master plan. A one-dose summer sets us up for a two-dose fall. And then, I'm not sure if you heard it, but the wording is very important here. And in the fall, we'll be able to talk about going back to school, back to work, and back to more normality. So not that in the fall we'll be able to go back to a normal life, but in the fall we'll be able to talk about maybe at some point, somehow, at some point in the next 72 years, having a back-to-normal plan, which is pretty much the only crumbs we're being thrown from our leaders and overlords right now. And I'm not exactly convinced. After all, remember when he said this? It's all too likely we won't be gathering for Thanksgiving, but we still have a shot at Christmas. Together, we have the power to get the second wave under control. Yes, that was in the lead-up to Thanksgiving of 2020 when Justin Trudeau said, well, we still have a shot at Christmas. Alas, there was no shot to be found. If you're a Hamilton fan, we all threw away our collective shot, as we're doing now with our one-dose summer. Now, I know not everyone watching this wants to get their COVID-19 shot. Not everyone wants to be vaccinated. I am a complete believer in your right as an individual to make that determination for yourself. But we cannot ignore the fact that there are countless people in Canada that desperately want to be vaccinated, but cannot be. They want to get their shots, but are unable to because Justin Trudeau's government has completely mishandled this. Well, Britain is having large, huge raves in Liverpool, and the United States 
States is reopening, stripping away mask mandates, stripping away gathering restrictions, while the cruise industry is firing up. What we see in Canada is that people are going to be limited to just a few nice little outdoor masked activities in the summer months and only potentially maybe just sort of talking about getting back to a normal restriction-free life in the fall. And if this government's record is any indication, I am not convinced that is going to happen. And if you need proof they don't know what they're doing, just look at what Canada's chief medical officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, said that by the summer, we could as a country be mixing and matching vaccines. If you got one dose of this, they might give you a second dose of something else. AstraZeneca for dose one, Pfizer for dose two. This is not what you do when you have your crap together. This is what you do when you're floundering, when you have no guaranteed trajectory for your vaccine supply, and when you are actually just making things up on the fly because you didn't have any long term planning. The thing about the way that the vaccines were supposed to be taken, the two-dose regimen three or four weeks apart, is that it's a lot easier to control because you're only looking three weeks down the line, basically. When you're starting to plan four months down the line, you cannot, certainly not in Canada right now, guarantee that if someone has a, a dose of something in May, that they will have a dose ready for them four months from that point. And that's the problem Canada has now, which is why we're stuck with a one-dose summer, because no one thought that, hey, maybe we should get things moving earlier on to have the two doses available for when the people who want to get vaccinated are ready to get vaccinated. And then you have Health Minister Patty Haidu saying that, well, you know what, people should probably check, check with their doctor if they've had AstraZeneca and politicians that are making really dumb calls on one hand, but not even wanting to own them. Michelle Rempel Garner, the conservative health critic, had put to Justin Trudeau a very realistic question, a very valid question, which is that given the mismatch we've seen in health guidance about what AstraZeneca is supposed to be used for, who should use it, should people who got an AstraZeneca shot be talking to their doctor? Here's the exchange from question period. And instead of owning that the liberal government has messed this up, Trudeau just goes to his default, which is name calling and insulting conservatives. Uh, the Prime Minister received his first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Will he be getting a second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine, two doses of Pfizer or Moderna, or one dose of uh, Pfizer or Moderna in the future? Which one will it be? Right Honourable Prime Minister. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I, I thank the uh, Honourable Member for Nose Hill for her uh, questions about my well-being. Uh, let me assure her that I uh, talked to my doctor just last week. And he recommended that I indeed get a second dose of AstraZeneca uh, in uh, the coming uh, weeks or months uh, when it becomes available, uh, when, uh, when, the recommend, when my turn comes up in the, month of Ontario, in the province of Ontario. Uh, that is uh, what I am focused on doing. I know there are questions being asked around the world about the data that involves mixing and max matching doses. There are no recommendations around that yet, but I know scientists are leaning in carefully to see if it, uh, it may be the right option for many people. Honourable Member for Calgary, Nose Hill. Is the Prime Minister and the government recommending that people who received the first dose of AstraZeneca get a second dose of AstraZeneca with that comment he just made, or is he advising them to contact their doctor? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. 
the Prime Minister and the government don't make health recommendations. That's not my job. My job is to, is I shared, uh, for example, what uh, the uh, member asked, what advice I personally got from my doctor. I certainly encourage all Canadians to talk to their doctors, uh, who will then be informed by experts and doctors both in their jurisdictions, uh, in their provinces and territories, and uh, by uh, the national guidance from NACI and from Health Canada. Uh, that is the best way to move forward. Don't take recommendations from politicians, particularly not Conservatives. Take recommendations from your doctors and the experts. Just like Stephen Gilbo, whenever you're backed into a corner, just name call the Conservatives and all your problems will go away. What about all of that civil tone and Team Canada stuff that we were supposed to be hearing about? Well, that only works when you're talking to Conservatives, apparently. So right now you have a government that has completely lost any ability for the population to trust it. This poll I found not all that surprising that Canadians have less trust in political leadership because of how the pandemic was handled. This is true of Jason Kenney. It's true of Doug Ford. It's true of Justin Trudeau. Oddly, it's true of everyone but Francois Legault, which is odd because Quebec has been one of the more restricted provinces in Confederation. But pretty much every leader in this country is less trusted now because of the pandemic pandemic. So Trudeau doesn't get to say, well, political leaders don't give health advice. Yeah, you do. You're actually responsible for imposing restrictions. You're responsible for vaccine supply and your staff are responsible for giving the guidance that has been the source of all of the confusion right now. And incidentally, even trust within parties, within governments, is waning. This is a huge bombshell out of Alberta. You may remember I, I spoke to Premier Jason Kenney on the weekend. His caucus chair, an MLA, has stepped down from caucus with the reason being he does not trust Jason Kenney's handling of the pandemic. And he actually slips into his letter this. Along with so many Albertans, our understanding was that we in the UCP had united around our shared principles, integrity, and common sense approaches to governing. In short, an Alberta strong and free. We did not unite around blind loyalty to one man, and while you promoted unity, it is clear that unity is falling apart. I know that many Albertans, including myself, no longer have confidence in your leadership. I thank you for your service, but I am asking that you resign so that we can begin to put our province back together again. Now, he hasn't resigned from the UCP. He's resigned from his leadership role to say to Jason Kenney, you've got to go. Now, this does not speak to specific restrictions, although I think those certainly contributed to it, but rather a leadership style that Todd Lowen is calling out here, where he says individual voices who've wanted to speak up do not have the right to, and it's basically the Jason Kenney show. And you may think, oh, well, it's just one disgruntled MLA, except it's really not, because another MLA hours later came out and said the same thing, and that was UCP MLA David Hansen supported his colleagues' courage. Those are his words. He said, Todd, I applaud your courage and stand behind your decision. I hear the same thing from our supporters in my area. I, along with many of our colleagues, share in your frustration. We, along with many Albertans, worked too hard to unite Conservatives to hand this province back to the NDP. Thanks for taking a stand. He doesn't specifically say he wants Kenny to resign, but he speaks up in support of a letter that does. And if he's being truthful when he talks about many colleagues sharing the same thing, this is going to be bad news for Jason Kenney. And the thing about Alberta is that Alberta's caucus has a lot of true believers in it, people that are genuinely bona fide conservatives that are not going to take a lot of these measures if they persist. 
And this is just me putting on my analytical hat now. This is not even a, a judgment call on my part. But there are a lot of people that I think in Alberta would not hesitate to dethrone the king, so to speak, in a way that we don't see political leaders and politicians doing in Ontario, where everyone's just shut up and gone along in lockstep with it, especially after the PC party made an example of Roman Baber and Belinda Carajalios by kicking them out by kicking them out for daring to criticize earlier on even their government's handling of the pandemic. So I expect we'll see a lot more of this, certainly in Alberta, maybe in other provinces, but less likely there in the days and weeks to come. But when we, when you can't even command the confidence of your caucus, you certainly cannot command the confidence of your country or your province, whatever the case may be. And that is why we see a trust pandemic going on, or rather a mistrust pandemic. We've got to take a break. When we come back, we will turn our attention to Israel here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to turn to what's been happening over in the Middle East, an inflammation of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, particularly between Israel and Hamas, which is the de facto governing authority, if you can call it that, of Gaza. And the interesting dynamic that's taking place here has been so woefully misrepresented by the media. Yes, you've got rockets and missiles that are going back and forth between Gaza and Israel, between Hamas and Israel, but the effect it's having on civilians has been misrepresented, the chronology has been misrepresented, and even the tension that actually triggered this has been misrepresented, a dispute that goes back to a specific area of Jerusalem and Palestinian families being evicted, but I want to talk about this in great detail because, again, the facts are important and are not being told in the mainstream media coverage, which is why Mike Fagelman of Honest Reporting Canada does what he does. He goes through, and if you look at his website, you can see point by point, anytime the media passes off a falsehood as truth or makes even an honest mistake that has significant implications, he's there to record it and to actually get it corrected and has a fair bit of success with this in the past as well. Mike Fagelman, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Andrew. So I, I want to start with, because this is so complicated, and, and people like you who immerse yourselves in the, immerse yourself in this have a, a background knowledge that a lot of Canadians might not have looking at this, if we bring this most recent bout of tension and conflict back, it seems to be something that most people are, are triggering back to what has itself been misrepresented, which is this eviction of Palestinian families from their home. And I, I want to play a, a brief clip here, if I may, of a radio report that aired on CBC Radio. A spokesman for Hamas in Beirut, Osama Hamdan, isn't making any promises about how long they will continue, but he sounded just as defiant blaming Israel for weeks of clashes in Jerusalem, where Israelis are trying to evict Palestinian homeowners and where Palestinians and Israeli police have clashed at the city's holiest shrine, Al-Aqsa. So that reporter, Sasha Petrikich, says that there are Israelis trying to evict Palestinian homeowners. This is not, though, as you point out, accurate. Well, it's not, and, and uh, quite frankly, what the Palestinians are doing, Hamas and, and Palestinian Authority, they're exploiting what is traditionally a real estate dispute, something between tenants and landowners. 
uh, into a, a nationalistic um, claim with a fervor to incite uh, the masses to convict violence. The issue is simply that the Palestinians who are living in these homes are living there rent-free and are squatting and not paying rent to, to the Jewish owners. And, you know, Israel, it's a democracy and it's an issue that's being dealt with and adjudicated in the Israeli courts, Supreme Court, mind you. Uh, the Israeli government's not taking a position. This is, this is for the judiciary. And, um, and yet this issue is being used as a pretext, um, a, a whipping tool really to foment a discord between Israelis and Palestinians of the likes that we're seeing play out in the streets of Jerusalem. And as, it, as you see with you know, 2,000 rockets that have been fired on Israeli cities like Ashkelon and Sterot. Yeah, and the shameful part of this is that you are very correct to point out that there are people that want to turn this into something different than what it is, who who want to misrepresent the facts and, and who want to stoke this. But a lot of people in the media are buying into it. And, and I have to ask, is this just because of ignorance in a lot of ways? They don't know this, or, or is it because there is a, a more if I can use the word, a more insidious bias that's taking place where they just want to view that uh, Israeli dynamic through that lens. Yeah, so I, I think it's a combination. I'll, I'll draw back to, to the report by Sassoon Petrusik. You know, do I think that he has an ax to grind against Israel? Not necessarily, but I do think that he got the facts wrong because the Palestinians were not homeowners. They were just living in, in, in a rental establishment. Um, you know, Andrew, if you, if you rent your apartment and you don't pay it, you're, you're going to have to deal with the legal process. You're, you know, the, the next step is not to, to uh, you know, throw rocks and, uh, and shoot people and, and, and lob rockets at, at Israelis. Um, but, but there are, you know, it's a case-by-case -case basis, but there certainly are journalists who have um, inclinations um, where they have certain fa uh, partisan uh, favoritism of, of certain issues. And, and their opinion sometimes gets disguised as news. It's, it can be subtle and other times it can be, really quite obvious. I mean, a report that we flagged this morning, uh, a CBC journalist, a freelancer, had claimed that Gaza is an open-air prison. That, that's, that's highly inflammatory language for a, a supposed neutral and objective journalist to use. But therein, you see, you know, representatives or from Canada's public broadcaster are tax dollars who are using that kind of incendiary language. Um, and, and it's just not objective. And, uh, and essentially, what we do at Honest Reporting, we're not trying to impart uh, and, and just tell the media that they have to report in a certain way. We just want them to, to get the facts straight and uh, to give Israel a fair shake, but we're not seeing it. Yeah, and, and open-air prison. I mean, I've heard that term before. It's frequently used by, by people who are, are quite anti-Israel, whatever the motivation of this particular journalist that uh, CBC uh, tapped for this segment was. But it's a values judgment. There, there's no way about it. It is a value judgment. It is a, an, argumented, an argumentation point that people could debate, but it, it's not a neutral point. It's not a fact-based point. I saw another news report, not from Canada, that uh, kind of nonchalantly referred to Israel as occupying gas. Gaza, which as well is not true. Someone would hear that, though, and that inherently frames the way they listen to and consume coverage. And, and for a region that has so much history, I mean, I've been to Israel twice. I've studied this extensively. It's a, a part of the world that I'm very passionate about. And even I wouldn't proclaim to be an expert on all of these details and nuances. And whenever I've written about Israel, I'm very nervous of, of accidentally using the wrong word or, or stumbling into some sort of a landmine. And, and pe people are going to make mistakes. I get 
it. They need to be corrected. You've been flagging these. Has there been, in this particular case, any response from CBC that's saying, yeah, you know what, you raise a good point there, Mike? So we, what I'm happy to say is we have a very good dialogue with the CBC. We speak to, to their teams, various teams, different leverage points of the CBC very regularly. Um, in, in some media, there there's a feeling that they're immune to criticism. In some levels of the CBC, that exists. Um, but I think that the CBC is is cognizant that mistakes are being made. Uh, I'd like to think that they are taking remedial action. It doesn't always happen. Uh, you're right to point out that, that covering the Arab-Israeli conflict is probably the most complicated, difficult assignment mm. for a journalist to do. Um, you know, the lexicon of the Middle East is a ticking time bomb. You refer to, to people making claims that, that Israel's occupying Gaza, though it doesn't, and it, it disengaged in 2005, and Israel pulled out its armed forces, just, you know, get, removed all 21 settlements, 8,500 settlers. And what did it get? It got a forward launching base by an Iran proxy shooting 2,000 rockets at it. And it's, it's the, the issue mostly is that kind of context is stripped. Um, you know, when we talk about the rocket fire, we, we don't really consider how, you know, the, you hear the media say these are homemade rockets. Well, the reality is these things are really going a great distance. They're, they're lethal. Um, and the, the real concern is not just with these, these kind of rockets that exist now, but what could happen in the future if Palestinian terrorists or Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon or elsewhere could get ICBMs, inter intercontinental ballistic missiles, which could really put Israel in paralysis. We saw last night there, there's incredible footage of uh, planes trying to land at Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, where you see uh, the rockets being fired in and Israel's missile interceptor, the Iron Dome, trying to, to repel them back. And that's what the, these terrorists are really trying to do, on top of, you know, ultimately committing the genocide of Jews and, and wiping Israel off the map. They're trying to paralyze Israel, because what, what ends up happening is and we had, I think, three or four different major airlines uh, canceling uh, flights to Israel, perhaps indefinitely until the hostilities stop. Um, and, and that's what they're trying to do. It's, a, it's, a, it's another effort to put a stranglehold on Israel. So when, when you have different people who are, you know, cavalierly advocating for, um, for weapon sales to be canceled on Israel, whether it's Canadian politicians or elsewhere, what they're actually doing is saying, is putting out a welcome mat for Israel to be uh, on the continued receiving end of, of rockets. And, and I, I should add, if that kind of a policy took hold, and other governments worldwide said, you know what, we shouldn't sell arms to Israel. That's welcoming Israel's destruction. And, uh, you know, naturally, Israel is doing everything in its, in, in its power to, uh, to, safeguard, to safeguard its citizenry. And it has that responsibility. And it goes without saying that any civilian life that is, that is lost is tragic. But the reality is Hamas is committing double war crimes. It's, it's firing on civilians while hiding behind civilians. And, and, and that's the issue that the media are really missing out. Well, that that is so tremendously important, Mike, because we see the footage of, in, in the last uh, few days, apartment buildings, for example, that have become uh, very ravaged by uh, Israeli responses to Hamas rockets. And what people don't realize is that Hamas literally uses civilians as human shields in this case. But in the media, these stories tend to get told as examples of, of just rampant and indiscriminate Israeli aggression. And, and one story that you flag as well, CBC National claiming that Palestinian rocket fire was, quote, in return, unquote, of Israeli airstrikes. Again, two words that very fundamentally change the dynamic of, of how people view the news. 
Yeah, and, and what they actually did is they reversed the, the chronology of how these hostilities began. And, you know, in, in the CBC's mind, and mind you, it was on CBC The National, which is its flagship program, uh, you know, and, and largely the source where, where a lot of people get information. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the story and the narrative that was told was that Israel initiated uh, the violence by, by shooting rockets and, and the Palestinian terrorists, like Hamas and Islamic Jihad, merely responded. And, and that's just, it's, it's morally obtuse, it's, it's morally repugnant, and it's just flat out wrong. And, uh, and it's, it's my job to, to make sure that the media gets out the narrative correctly as it actually happened. And we encourage our members, we have about 50,000 subscribers, to complain directly to the media to voice their concerns. Yeah, and I'm glad you do that because I, I do think there is a, a the way you said about you know two war crimes basically taking place is incredibly valid. Israel does what it can to minimize collateral damage, civilian casualties, where Hamas does what it can to increase them on both sides, and and that's the particular evil here is that yes, they want to kill Jewish lives, but they also are completely fine killing their own citizens if it helps them in their PR battle against Israel. And I think it's incumbent on Western media to not go along with that. Oh, absolutely. And, I, and I'll give you a particular example. Even a, a Palestinian human rights group uh, reported, I believe yesterday or the day before, that eight Palestinians, two children, were killed by errant Palestinian rockets. And what's interesting to note is that, uh, that Israel speculates uh, that about a third of the 2,000 rockets that have been fired at Israeli cities prematurely uh, exploded or, or landed errantly within Gaza. So when you hear about the casualties uh, within uh, within the Palestinian territories, within Gaza, which, but mind you, are told by the uh, Gaza Ministry of Health, which is an arm of, of the Hamas terror group. So you got to question the combatant and civilian casualty uh, counts right there. Uh, you, you're not really hearing that, well, how many of these people were killed by, by Palestinian munitions? And, you know, Israel suspects that about 30 of, I think, at this point, given you know the, where we are right now, about 60 some odd Palestinians who've died uh, are, are actually terrorists. But you, you don't hear those numbers, you just hear the total number. And, uh, and, and that really paints a misleading picture that what's depicted is that Israel is you know, de facto and implicitly targeting innocents. And that's just not the case. They're, they're with pinpoint precision targeting terrorists and they're doing it in a way that minimizes civilian casualties, doing things like that are really untold to, to warn your combatant of even of, of, that you're even going to carry out an attack. So they'll, they'll, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the buildings that were destroyed, which, mind you, were, were Hamas uh, terror infrastructure mm -hmm. they were using. Uh, they, they warn them with, with cell phone calls, with uh, text messages, leaflets, thousands of leaflets that are, that are dropped. And then they use a, a technique called the roof knocking technique where they, they drop uh, miniature um, uh, munitions with non-lethal non munitions on the top of the roof to tell people if they, if they didn't heed their warnings to get out of the area. There's no other army in, in the history of modern warfare who would ever do this. And, and that's why Israel can proudly say it's the most moral military in the world. Very well said, and I appreciate all your work uh, having to keep glued to the mainstream media day in, day out to uh, call these things out. But it is important because when facts are gone, uh, you lose a whole bunch in the way of any ability of having a, an honest discussion. Mike Fagelman, Executive Director of Honest Reporting Canada. His great work is updated pretty much in real time these days, and that's at honestreporting.ca. Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. My pleasure. Andrew, thank you.
Honest Reporting Canada. They do absolutely tremendous work and so important to do. And a lot of people are going to say, well, you know what? That's a pro-Israel outlet. Why are they uh, why are they the authority on this? And I'll, I'll say two things on that. Number one, they put everything out front and center completely with the facts to let you decide for yourselves. But more importantly, not everything is morally neutral. In fact, a lot of things aren't. And I would say that we could all look to the Jewish people and the Palestinian people and say, yes, it's not fair that they end up as individual people in the front lines or in the crosshairs of these conflicts. But if you are stacking up Israel and Hamas, 100% full stop, Israel's the good guy, Hamas is the bad guy. There is zero justification for any other position. And it doesn't have to be a 100% full-throated defense of every single domestic decision made by the Israeli government, but it's talking about rule of law versus law of the jungle, respect for life versus destruction of life. And this is something that, again, Canadian politicians would be well-suited to realize that not everything has to become this morally neutral pablum, which is what Mark Garneau's statement about this, which came out yesterday, was. He said Canada was gravely concerned by the situation, urges all parties to take immediate steps to end the violence. He says, yes, the indiscriminate barrage of rocket attacks fired by Hamas is unacceptable and must cease. But then he goes on and says, ah, but Canada is gravely concerned by the continued expansion of settlements and by the demolitions and evictions, including the ongoing cases in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. He says these actions impact families and livelihoods and do not serve peace or international law even though it's a case going before the Supreme Court that is just a, a real estate dispute, but Mark Garneau didn't get into that. And then he said Canada wants a two-state solution with Palestinians living side-by-side side with an Israel state, and Canada reiterates its call for immediate de-escalation. Now, the, Candace Malcolm, my colleague, made a, a brilliant point on this. She said the statement is equivocal nonsense. It's like they took a conservative news release condemning Hamas terrorism, then found an NDP news release demonizing Israel and stabled them together. And I still chuckle when I see that because I think she captures it well, whereas they didn't want to actually take a position. So they figured, all right, let's criticize both sides and maybe everyone will love us. And if you look at the response to Mark Garneau's tweet, all of the uh, Israel lovers are saying, well, you know, this is terrible. And all the Palestinian lovers are saying, well, this is all terrible. So they did that whole thing of trying to walk the line and keep both sides happy and ending up alienating both, which is why you need to stand up for truth. Canada should never shy away from being an ally of Israel. And I lament that we have lost that strong bond that we had under Stephen Harper, who put out a fantastic statement on this. Clear and concise, horrific scenes out of Israel over the last 24 hours as civilians shelter from a barrage of terrorist escalation. Attacks on the state of Israel are attacks on us all and must be immediately condemned by international leaders. I pray for the safety of everyone in the region. There's respect for life, but a clear and unequivocal stand that Israel is the one being attacked. Israel is not the aggressor. And when people point to the sophistication of Israeli weaponry, Israel is better at this. But that does not make them the bad guys. And Mike Fagelman pointed this out quite clearly. Israel goes through painstaking efforts to minimize Palestinian casualties. 
Yet Hamas goes to every effort possible to maximize casualties on both sides of the Gaza wall, their own people and those of Israel. So when you get people like NDP leader Jagmeet Singh calling for a halt on Canadian arms sales to Israel as violence escalates, what the NDP is saying is that Israel does not have the right to defend itself. He says, by arming one side of the conflict, it is undermining the peace process and it is supporting illegal occupation. Illegal occupation of whom? Gaza is not occupied. There are no settlements in Gaza. Israel unilaterally left Gaza and said, fine, we will take the first step. And what has Gaza done? It has replaced a government that it had that was not particularly great with one that's even worse, which continues to seek the complete destruction of the Jewish state, the complete elimination of the Jewish people, and they're the ones who are somehow painted in Canadian media and by the leader of the NDP as being the victims. And interestingly enough, I mentioned to Mike a few moments ago how fraught a lot of discourse about Israel is, things that you're not allowed to say, things that are very loaded terms and, and ways in which you could accidentally do it. One of them, which is very deliberate, is where you recognize Israel's capital as being. Now, the reality is, functionally, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Israel has had control of West Jerusalem since Israel existed for the first time, and Israel has had control of East Jerusalem since the end of the Six-Day War. But functionally speaking, Jerusalem is Israel's capital. Historically speaking, Jerusalem is Israel's capital. Yet countries around the world are terrified of realizing that. Just three countries of, I believe, the 90 countries that have embassies in Israel have them in Jerusalem. The most notable of those is the United States, which moved its there in 2018 at the behest of Donald Trump. Aaron O'Toole has said that Canada's conservatives, if they form government, will move Canada's embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. But interestingly enough, I stumbled on a pretty significant story that Global Affairs Canada staff actually prepared for a move of Canada's embassy to Jerusalem, a tremendously important step, although it never actually happened, the reason being there was no buy-in from Justin Trudeau's liberals. But how I found this is I, I reached out to Global Affairs with what's called an access to information request, so trying to get a hold of internal government documents. I did it in 2019, and I've only just gotten a non-response now. But I actually did it after former conservative leader Andrew Scheer had pledged, if he was elected, that he would move the embassy to Jerusalem. And I said, well, I wonder what Global Affairs staff are, are saying about this. So I put in the request for May 2019, when Scheer made the pledge, to December when I put in the access to information request. So pretty much a seven month period or so, or six and a half month period. I just last week got a response that said the following. I have looked through the documents received from our respective program area, and although the department did in fact prepare for a possible move of the Canadian Embassy to Jerusalem, the move did not happen. Since the relocation of the embassy did not happen, many of the documents contain information for the preparation of the move, and therefore all contain references to cabinet. Cabinet documents are confidential. They are not subject to access to information laws, which means that any document that was destined for cabinet the government doesn't have to disclose. But the non-response of these documents, the non-production of them, tells me that there was a, a very serious, although it's not clear how serious, push towards moving the embassy, or at the very least something that would have been given to a cabinet member for sign-off, but it did not happen. 
Now, on background, a Global Affairs Canada source told me there was no formal memorandum to Cabinet, which would have been a document that the foreign minister at the time would have brought to his colleagues. That didn't happen. So we know that Justin Trudeau's position on this has not changed, which is absolutely not. As Global Affairs told me, Canada will not be moving its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and the long-standing position is that the status of Jerusalem can only be resolved as part of a general settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. So again, not taking a clear position, but it's not like the equivocation is dismantling any of the conflict. It's not like the equivocation is contributing towards de-escalation. It just means that there's no moral grounding in Canada's position on this at this time. We've got to wrap things up, but my thanks to you all for tuning in to the program today. We'll talk to you next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.